Hello, thanks for tuning in to Kane and Rinse for our issue on the first two generations of Pokemon. This is the host and editor, Ryan, tuning in after the recording to make an unfortunate note that um, due to reasons that uh, frankly baffle and confound me, my audio for this particular recording uh, was rather mangled. I have a feeling it has something to do with, uh, with Skype. Um, even though I feed an entirely different microphone audio into Skype so that it doesn't mess around with the audio that I used for recording, I think it still managed to, uh, to upset the beast somehow, so to speak. As you can hear, this audio sounds just fine, and I've literally changed nothing other than not having Skype running. So uh, my apologies, there is quite a bit of audio clipping in uh, my audio, and it sounds rather terrible throughout. Uh, I hope if I can address this up front, express my profound apologies, and um, encourage you to, uh, if you can bear it, if you can bear the sound, <laughs> the sound of my heavily clipped and distorted voice. I think there's still some really good conversation and information housed within. Anyways, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Canon Rinse Podcast, Volume 10, Issue 456, in which we will be discussing Pokemon Green Version, Red Version, Blue Version, Yellow Version, Special Pikachu Edition, Gold Version, Silver Version, and Crystal Version. Uh, so that's a lot of uh, games to get through today. Um, hopefully the amount of overlap between them is going to uh, still allow this to be contained within a relatively expedient, um, well, two-hour, two-hour-ish, two-hour-plus, uh, probably two-hour-plus-plus-plus issue. Without further ado, my name is Ryan Heyman, and joining me in issue 456 are Charlotte Cutts. Diglet-dig, trio, trio, trio. <laughs> Richard Davison. Uh, Pika Pika. <laughs> and John Salmon. Hi. <laughs> Hello. Uh, no, uh, no remarks about shorts and how comfy they are so far. That's all right. Plenty of time for that. The middle of winter. There's no shorts on going. So our, uh, our journey begins in Pocket Monsters Red Version and Pocket Monsters Green Version, as they were originally released in Japan. Um, at this point, it might be uh, might be useful to issue a spoiler warning. The Pokemon games do have stories. I don't know how how precious people are about them, and these games are quite old at this point. Um, and so, spoiler warning to do with uh, do with what you what you will. Uh, anyways, the games were originally released: Pocket Monsters Red and Pocket Monsters Green, on February twenty seventh of nineteen ninety six in Japan only. Um, following the success of those two versions, they released an enhanced third edition called Pocket Monsters Blue on October 15th, 1996 via Korokoa Comic, which um, they had a very strong relationship with at that time. And it was released October 10th of 1999 in retail in Japan. Uh, so it was a Korokoa Comic exclusive for a uh, long time, actually. Pocket Monsters Blue version was translated and localized around the world as Pokemon Red version and Pokemon Blue version. Um, those are the versions that uh, those of us in Europe and North America will be more familiar with. Those came out September 28th of 1998 in North America, Australia. So that's um, more than two years after the Japanese versions came out. 
and on October 5th of 1999 in Europe. We should uh, note that we're primarily going to be talking about Generations 1 and 2 in this, but uh, just to note that they did, um, that these Generation 1 games did receive a couple of remakes along the way. We will not be spending a lot of time discussing them. They might come up here and there, but um, those would be uh, kind of contained to potential future Canon Rich issues in which the appropriate generations are being discussed. So, anyways. Um, there were a couple of remakes of Red and Blue on Game Boy Advance. That was Pokemon Fire Red and Leaf Green in 2004. And there was a remake of Pokemon Yellow version on Nintendo Switch called Pokemon Let's Go Pikachu and Pokemon Let's Go Eevee in 2018. Uh, the developer for all of these games and all of the mainline Pokemon entries is Game Freak which began as a video game-centric magazine, kind of coming out of the Japanese arcade scene, self-published by Satoshi Tajiri and Ken Sugimori in the, in the 80s. Um, before Pokemon, once they noticed the arcade scene and the kind of publishing scene that uh, went along with it was starting to lose a bit of traction, um, they got into actual video game development. They developed a few different games, Mendel Palace, an arcade throwback on the NES, kind of going back to their arcade roots, Yoshi, um, which people might know as a uh, kind of tetris puzzle game on the NES, Mario and Wario, and um, even some games for the Mega Drive, including uh, Magical Taruruto-kun and Pulseman. Uh, since releasing Pokemon, they've mainly stuck to uh, to developing mainline Pokemon games, but they've made a few other types of games along the way, mostly just kind of experiments that they wanted to kind of get out there. Um, Drill Dozer, Harmonite on the 3DS, Pocket Card Jockey, Tembo the Badass Elephant, Giga Wrecker, Little Town Hero on the Switch. Um, so anyways, they, they have some experience, but for the most part, they are, they are the Pokemon people. Um, Nintendo was initially skeptical of the Pokemon pitch, but gave them the benefit of the doubt due to the success of the prior titles, and when uh, Shigeru Miyamoto himself started to kind of step up and go to bat for the idea. These games were published by Nintendo. On this first generation of Pokemon, the designer was Satoshi Tajiri from the original Game Freak crew. Uh, the producers were Shigeru Miyamoto, Takashi Kawaguchi, Tsunkazu Ishihara, and it was programmed by Junichi Masuda, who also composed the music. Shigeki Morimoto, Tetsuya Watanabe, uh, Sosuke Tamada, and uh, artist uh, Ken Sugimura was the head artist. You'll recognize his art throughout the series, joined in this instance by Atsuko Nishida. At the time of release, um, it reviewed, uh, reviewed fairly well, actually. <laughs> Um, Game Rankings has this at an 88%, and IMDb User Reviews have this at an 8.9, pretty similar between the two of them. Um, this went on to be a tremendous, <laughs> tremendously well-selling piece of software. Uh, red, green, and blue versions worldwide sold 31.38 million copies as of 2019, and yellow version sold 14.64 million copies. Uh, let's get into um, our histories, and we're going to have to be cautious to be a bit brief on these because, as with any worldwide cultural phenomenon and one that has uh, coming on a 30-year uh, history at this point, um, 
it's uh i think it'd be easy to get a little bit swept up <laughs> in an all-in for these to go on for probably longer than they need to so um i'll go first get it out of the way and being a bit brief here um i i i owned a game boy pocket and um pokemon was the new hotness when i was um i would have been eight years old when pokemon came out in america um i picked up pokemon blue version and have ever since uh, with each subsequent generation um, have always stuck with the one with the cooler cooler color scheme and i mean that not in a like whoa cool color scheme bro but like um you know blue version silver version moon version that kind of thing i've uh i played blue i played yellow and then relevant to the show later on i played silver but not crystal um, I've revisited each of the remakes and have since played at least one game in every Pokemon generation. Um, one of my kind of long running uh, points of gamer pride is having a near complete living decks on my um, uh, between my Pokemon games now stored on Pokemon Home. I think the app is called on the Switch. Um, but that is having not only complete Pokedexes, but like actually one of every Pokemon in a Pokeball on the server somewhere. So I'm uh, still missing a few of the ones from um, a few of the legendaries from the new Sword and Shield as I'm still playing through the expansion and I can't seem to get my hands on a Darkrai. But uh, other than that, I have a nearly complete living deck. So big fan of the series for a long time. Anyways, Charlotte, how about you? We try to steer clear in Kanarin's from hyperbole but it's really not hyperbole to say that pokemon gem 1 and 2 were the formative games of my childhood back then like like kids played things like resident evil through like their big brothers so all the the boys in the playground would play the horror games through their bigger brothers and stuff but pokemon gem 1 and 2 were really the games which everybody on the playground regardless of gender regardless of age were playing it for me, I had to wait to play Pokemon Yellow because my parents were very anti letting me just jump into the newest fad right away. So I begged and pleaded to get a Game Boy Color with Pokemon Yellow. And that dream was finally realized Christmas 2000 when I was eight years old. By the time I got Pokemon Yellow, it was a little bit old and everybody had played Red and Blue and I felt a little bit behind with the times. So unfortunately, Gen 1 wasn't quite as special to me, but Gen 2, I played a bit more contemporaneously to my peers. So that felt really special to me. And I played Silver and Crystal. Excellent. How about Rich? Christmas 1999, I was a 13-year-old boy ready to turn 14 in March of 2000. So I was laser targeted for, for Pokemon and it was something that I was very excited about. Um, I had absolutely no business asking my parents for either Pokemon or a Game Boy Color. It was something that was firmly, uh, they, they just weren't in a position to pick that up for me because of whatever financial reasons that they had themselves. And lo and behold, on Christmas, they did actually buy me that. And it was like a dream come true. Vividly, I remember having a very sort of distinct internal conflict about the, the sort of fact that I was growing up and, and playing a game that felt very childish for a 13-year-old, about a turn 14-year-old. Specifically, I remember around the time thinking, you know, like, at what point am I expected to grow out of, of cartoons? And separately, I also had a distinct feeling that it was something I was going to get head over heels in love with and, and therefore might 
prevent me from attracting potential girlfriends at the time as well. But um, lo and behold, it was something that was fascinating because it was something that um, a lot of my peers and, and friends picked up. I had a, a Game Boy uh, Color Blue with Pokemon Blue, which was a game that I played, I don't know, 20, 30 times across the course of the next two or three years. I also had a, a Pokemon guide, and to this day, I still maintain it's one of the most thorough appealing guidebooks that's uh, that's available to go out there. So it was something that I was able to really rinse. In terms of Pokemon Gold and Silver, I don't have so much of a, a fondness for those games. I think at the time they came out, I'd probably grown out of playing games on my Game Boy a little bit. Perhaps some of my peers didn't necessarily have an inclination to pick those games up, but I've played them uh, many times since since then. And like you, Ryan, I've I played one at least one of these games in every generation. Finally, I think it's important to note that at two stages in my it, at two stages in my life, I've had a relationship with Pokemon. One was as a 13-year-old boy myself, and the second is when my child turned six and his uh, fascination with Pokemon is is abundant. So I know uh, quite a lot about Pokemon Gen 1, a little bit about Gen 2. It gets a bit hazy somewhere on the middle, and then come Pokemon XY, Pokemon Sun, Moon, and Pokemon Sword and Shield. I'm very knowledgeable, despite my uh, pretenses uh, not to be. There you go. There's your like excuse to get back into it and not feel ashamed. Now it can be for your kids instead of for your vicariously playing Pokemon. John. There child. it is. Quite. Yeah, absolutely. And John, what is your history? Okay, so I'm slightly older than Rich, just by about six months, and I think most of what got me with Pokemon was basically all the lead up to it. I mean, you've you've already mentioned that it was uh, what three years in Japan before it came to Europe, and a year in america and in australia and at the time we were living in england but we had friends who came uh, who came over from australia at some point in that year and they bought various games i mean they even had uh they had yellow before we'd even had the original two games released here i remember thinking that that was like absolutely wild and was almost one of those like my uncle works for nintendo you know i'm a lying through my teeth little kid going into school saying i've played pokemon my friends have it and nobody believed it at all and just thought i was lying uh, which was great fun um but there was also in that i guess three year and then year period there were tons of things like i think the cartoon had started and the um trading cards were probably already a thing and the, the kind of the pokemania in america certainly was was absolutely off the chain there was uh, from what i remember like events going around maybe even before the games had come out like there was like a pokemon mobile that went around that you could trade pokemon with and get exclusive legendaries and things from and i think all of that i mean maybe some of that's later but like all of that kind of fervor just built up over this period where i was like 11 12 and by the time the game finally came out here, which was like a couple of weeks before I turned 14, I was still in it, but I was mainly in it, I think, because it had been like a part of the conversation for like at least the previous year. So I kind of got swept up in it. And we had this um, weird situation with my parents where we didn't really get bought very many video games. Like in 1998, 99, we were probably still sat on the Mega Drive that we'd had for Christmas in like 92 or 93 so we we weren't like treated to all of the new stuff but there was for whatever reason my parents went out and they bought all three of us new game boy colors at the beginning of uh, 99 so like, i was i was ready prepped for this um and then yeah as, as everybody else like it came out we all played it like crazy it was a, a huge deal at school and lots of problems with getting banned and people stealing each other's stuff and i can't remember what cart i had of it originally um 
I think I had blue and then we traded them back and forth with other people. So at some point I ended up with red and I played a bit of yellow, but it was mostly like within that first year playing a lot of the, the, the original few games. Um, and I, I must've played through them plenty of times and got pretty stuck into it. But then by the time a couple of years later had come around again, like rich, uh, by that point I was 15 going on 16 I wasn't that keen on playing Pokemon anymore. I wasn't interested in gold and silver. Um, you know, we were far too busy doing more grown-up stuff like going to the pub and, you know, that sort of thing at 15. <laughs> so we had, I had like a complete drop-off from it for, hmm, probably until like Diamond and Pearl came out when I was, by that point I was like 22, 23. And I remember I had a DS and I wanted to kind of get back into it and see what the see what Pokemon was still like sort of eight years after the fact and see, I guess, like try and reconnect with some of the feelings that I'd had with it. And I've done that multiple times over the years since. I, I know I played through Diamond and kind of enjoyed it, but also don't remember very much about it now. Um, I had the remakes of Gen 2, despite never playing them originally at the time. So I had, I've got a save file that I loaded up on Soul Silver yesterday that's got over 100 hours in it, which is frankly ridiculous i can't believe i i put that much time into it 10 years ago and then i've dabbled a tiny little bit with the other games but nothing's ever really caught my attention in any way so i've i think i own x or y and i've beaten the first gym in it that's about it so yeah the the vast majority of my experience is with i guess gen 1 gen 2 and diamond and i think i played through fire red at some point but don't really remember that very well either so i'm kind of there like the the early stuff the gen one the 150 monsters the towns the way that that game's built up like that's burrowed into my head like a worm because it got in there when i was 12 and you know it's difficult to shift memories like that uh let's talk about the development of the games um there is some great information on bulbapedia and game informer which i've uh, referenced a lot of this from so uh, as a whole, thank you to them for populating this section. These games were in part inspired by the Ultraman series of television shows, in particular Ultra 7, in which a protagonist uses giant monsters in which they um, they capture in small capsules to help them fight. Um, Ultraman also has quite a bit of uh, transportation through electrical wires and stuff like that, which is where, you know, part of the inspiration for the link cables and stuff came from. Um, but anyways, the, the Ultra 7 inspired an idea called Capsule Monsters, which um, which members of the Pokemon team, the eventual Pokemon team, pitched around, and uh, especially to Nintendo, several times, and each time they were turned down. And uh, like we said before, it wasn't until Shigeru Miyamoto who became Tajibi's friend, um, ended up kind of throwing some of his muscle behind it that it eventually got funded. Uh, the scope of the project was almost more than Game Freak could manage by themselves. Um, it, it drove them to near bankruptcy, and it was something that uh, you know, even affected the development of Gold and Silver, even after uh, Pokemon Red and Green had become such a massive success. Um, they were still... Uh, kind of recovering from the debt that they've accrued and um, the uh, kind of burnout of the employees. So uh, Pocket Monsters Red and Green actually launched to fairly modest sales in Japan, but players began circulating rumors of Mew, an extra Pokemon in the game, 
which um, which one of the programmers put in there just as kind of like a little, not even, an, I don't want to say an Easter egg, because it wasn't really fully meant to be found. Like, it's not supposed to be discoverable in-game. Um, it was just something that they had some extra space on the cart, and uh, this person decided to put in an extra Pokemon, um, just as... It's kind of forward thinking. So like if we have any kind of like fan events and we want to give away something special, then we have this little extra bit of data in there that we can use if we ever need to. And um, people started discovering glitches in the game. We'll talk about missing number and, and some of the uh, stuff later on. But uh, the first game and um, the second game through most of its development were notoriously glitchy and the code was basically just being held together by duct tape and bandages like it was uh not in a pretty state from the code base side of things um and so you know people were finding these glitches and were finding that some of these glitched battles that they were getting into were putting them up against a pokemon they'd never seen before mew um, which was in the data but had never been mentioned elsewhere after Mew was discovered, Korokoro Magazine, which we mentioned before, announced that Mew would be distributed to 20 lucky contest entrants. Um, the contest received over 78,000 entrants, and after that kind of buzz of popularity and the secret hidden in the cart, um, the sales of the uh, Pokemon games ended up um, going up significantly after that. Uh, Game Freak used this increased popularity to fund Pocket Monsters Blue, which was an enhanced version with improved graphics and music and sound. Um, Pocket Monsters Blue was localized for the rest of the world as Pokemon Red version and Blue version. And um, the series soon spread to trading cards, manga, television, anime, movies, and innumerable other consumer goods. And it became kind of the global... A phenomenon that we know it today but um, it came from a place of uh, almost not happening several times and um, fairly kind of modest takeoff um, maybe if it wasn't for the kind of secret inclusion of Mew we might not be having this uh, conversation today who knows anyways the game starts off you are a 10 year old Pokemon trainer leaving home in Pallet Town to journey across the the region of Kanto to catch Pokemon, defeat gym, gym leaders, topple a criminal gang, oddly enough, and defeat the Elite Four, who are kind of the um, the most prestigious Pokemon trainers in all of the land, to become the land's foremost Pokemon trainer. You are um, given a rival at the beginning of the game, a little neighbor boy next door, um, you both receive your initial Pokemon as a gift from the local professor at the beginning of the game, and you encounter each other um, throughout the game. The rival becomes kind of like a mini-boss in a way. If you want to think of the gym leaders as bosses, the rival pops up unexpectedly a lot of the time and uh, gives you uh, some quite challenging battles from time to time. We aren't going to go through the entire game beat for beat, but uh, I guess throughout the the journey of um yeah throughout the journey throughout the kanto region um i just wanted to kind of open up before we get too in depth into the gameplay into the um sound and the music and and all of the other issue or all of the other aspects surrounding it are there any i guess bits and pieces of the story or of the journey of the various towns you go to 
that you find particularly memorable and interesting? I think that the reason that this gets me is because it was something that I spent a lot of time in at an age that was relatively formative and I can still remember. And I remember the um, the towns very strongly. I remember the path that you take through the game. The map is is almost iconic, especially, you know, mm-hmm. for, for what it actually looks like in Gen 1. And like all of the all of the gym leaders and stuff, even without having any of the, the extra context, like I know that um, Brock and Misty and stuff are, are big characters in the anime, but even like not knowing anything like that, I remember all of this stuff str- so strongly. So playing Blue again over the course of the last month or so, like I found I found that I could remember for some weird reason that I'd be doing a gym battle and I knew that, oh, this, this next Pokemon that comes out is going to be this and it's going to be this level. And I was right, despite it being at least 15, probably 20 years since I've, I've had a last like proper trip through it. It is a series that uh, takes a lot of risks. You'll see in future iterations, and part of the reason why I propose doing two generations at once and uh, also kind of like setting the course if we are able to go back to the Pokemon series for future Kane and Rince issues to continue doing two generations at once is because I think it's almost more interesting to talk about the differences between the generations and the ways that generations kind of evolve into the next rather than, you know, just focusing on on one set of games. Um, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of um, features in particular that appear for one entry and then disappear from the Pokemon series for the rest of time. Mm. It's, it's interesting that they're like, even though they are, you know, not at this point, certainly, but uh, later on in the uh, generations of Pokemon are literally developing like the, one of the biggest media brands in the world, Mm. yet they're still going out there and trying like super weird and super niche things that um you know there's no guarantee that they're going to work there's not really and there are things that they've decided eh, it didn't work and uh, instead of taking them out in testing they um just decided to you know include it in the game and just see how uh how the players as a whole would react to them and i i think that's really cool um you know obviously it it has led to pokemon being a very uh, having a very unique kind of personality and flavor as it's grown and evolved, and as some of these weird features have stuck around, I, th- I think that the on the other side of that conversation is a is a discussion about just how effectively they nailed the formula in the first instance, and how little mm-hmm. almost has changed between the generations. Like Sword and Shield is very similar, albeit something that has like a different engine and a different um, like feel as you go through the game. And what I find most fascinating is just how the game that my son enjoys now, 20, what, 22 years after I first played a Pokemon, is ostensibly almost exactly the same as, as the one that I did. And, and it just goes to show like just how effective they were at nailing that initial concept. One of the small features that's gone away in the series, I'm pretty sure, is um, if you have a Pokemon that is poisoned in your party, like Gen 1, you get this this horrible full screen flash every few steps that you take that plays this terrible noise. And it's just like, it feels like your Pokemon are being stabbed every few steps <laughs> and you can watch their health go down. But it's just like, you know, for um, for as, uh, as little kind of sound real estate as the game had to work with, like they really do make the sense of traveling with a Pokemon uh, a poisoned Pokemon, really terrible. 
Yeah, like it's stressful. I mean, that's that's very much it's a big thing in Gen One, and I think it's mm-hmm. basically the same in Gen Two. But in a sense that those those games are both based on, uh, like, basically the world is like a grid system. It's like a massive chessboard, and I'm not sure how long it took them before they got to the point where it was a little bit more more fluid than that. Certainly, mm-hmm. Soul Silver when I booted it up yesterday, which is eight years later on from Gen One, nine years later on that feels like a more just a sprawled out world rather than this this odd grid system and i guess the um the poisoning thing worked really well because it has the the very specific like markers where it's going to go off but maybe you just lose that as it as it becomes more natural one thing that i think the they've done a, a good job of kind of mitigating as they've moved through the series and, and this is a thing that really frustrated me is like you will fight a hell of a lot of ratatas radicates grimers zubats and something else that does a load of poison just because of the nature of the way that the team rock are doing and like this game is almost designed to try and make your journey through it as, as complicated as possible by just throwing as much status ailments as you, as you can possibly get as you go through it. So rather than it being an issue of difficulty, because this is not a particularly very difficult game, certainly not Gen 1, it's more about just almost elongating or sort of making things slightly more obnoxious to, to kind of get through. And, and that, um, as you mentioned, the, the, the poison effect, it sort of vividly brings back memories of having to go through something like Silphco, for example, where you're just mm-hmm. fighting Team Rockets oh, and yeah. every single one of them has a, a Ratata or Eradicate that does Hyperfang, so almost a guaranteed critical hit or something that's going to cause confusion or poison just to try and make that journey as long as it can possibly be. That's another thing that uh, I've noticed throughout the series, and I don't know if this is a matter of me getting better at remembering the type matching in Pokemon or whether it's power creep throughout the series, but it feels like in the recent Pokemon games, like... I don't know. I started noticing it in uh, probably the DS games onward and especially, you know, sun and moon and sword and shield, like every single fight is pretty much over in one move. Like I can basically, you know, even with Pokemon that are relatively around the same level, like if you have the type advantage, like you should be able to one shot your opponent. And uh, I, I seem to remember like the, battles in the early Pokemon games lasting a little bit longer, you know, whether it's just a a few turns instead of the one turn, like there's something I kind of miss about that because, you know, because the modern games are so focused on one shotting your enemies, like you end up loading all of your attack slots with the things, the highest damage numbers and diversifying your, um, you know, the types of moves that you can do, but um, there's not really as much of a focus on casting status effects and lowering defense and stuff like there was in the initial games where the battle battles would go on a little bit longer. And I, I, I kind of miss that. I mean, the, the really nice thing about Gem 1 and for Gen 2 as well is that you it was perfectly pitched at kids my age because you could cheese it and just like... As a kid, I had no concept of defense moves whatsoever. I would have like metapod battles that would last for half an hour and I'd just be chipping away at it <laughs> till I ran out of moves. Um, but the thing is, back then, it's the same for everybody back then when they were kids and they didn't have access to an endless stream of games. You just stuck with that game. And if you died and got sent back, then you just keep going and going and going. And like, no matter how bad you were at games as a kid, you could you could definitely finish the game. But there was a real skill to it. And looking back on it now as an adult, 
there's just really like there's a lot to learn to just really master the game but you don't have to master the game to finish it so it's just perfectly pitched at, at younger kids and older kids it's um really brilliant game design it's interesting to me to think of, of like a, almost a, a sort of back and forth in Pokemon Gen 1, because for me, this is, is not a game that was um, particularly very challenging. And it's because while it sort of does gently encourage you to play a game with like a breadth of Pokemon and to sort of sculpt your team based around different types and different types of damage and different sort of um, defensive maneuvers and, and strategies, like this is a game that you can easily just steamroll by just taking your starter Pokemon and just hitting every single battle with it and for me i would say probably the first x amount of times that i played it it was a case of just getting any pokemon that you like the look of and then only using that pokemon and to the extent where you can go through the entirety of the the elite four providing that you've got enough uh, power points in each one of those moves so it's the the, the strategic element of this is not a, a thing that i engaged in probably until the later parts of the series when they started to get a bit more cognizant of uh, pvp play and having to sort of think more broadly about the intelligence of a of another human player Let's talk a little bit about the, the journey through the game. Um, there's a uh, so this this plays out like a typical kind of leaving home JRPG. Um, you go and you you fight gym leaders along the way. Each gym leader has kind of an elemental typing. Um, Brock will be the rock type. He'll have a couple of rock type Pokemon to throw at you. Misty will have her water gym and so on. Uh, but there are a few kind of interesting diversions along the way. Not every town has a gym associated with it. Uh, one of the towns that I think people um, people talk a lot about is Lavender Town. It's kind of the haunted house stage of the game, so to speak, to use the regular kind of video game trope. Um, but it is a it's a town where there's a giant tower in which a lot of ghostly activity seems to be taking place. And in fact, it kind of leads to, like everything surrounding that town is very interesting. I mean, the music, first of all, is very creepy. And um, so really kind of, uh, it's a haunting tune. And I think especially because it sounds really, really great with the Game Boy instruments. Like, I don't think that particular tune would be half as scary if it was performed on Super Nintendo uh, sound fonts or anything like that. Like I think the tinniness of the Game Boy speaker really makes that um, that song like just really really memorable. Uh, you end up fighting a lot of a lot of mediums and channelers and and people in this tower as you as you rise up the ranks. And um, but it, at the beginning you're not able to get very far at all because whenever you encounter a random battle. Uh, it's a kind of unidentifiable ghost that uh, attacks you and you can't really do anything to it until you venture somewhere else and get an item that uh, allows you to see ghosts. So um, I don't know. I always like a little bit of spooky stuff in video games already, but um, this uh, Lavender Town was uh, a great diversion that I, I really appreciated myself. Quite creepy when you're a little kid too, you know, your imagination goes for it. <laughs> Did not enjoy that. <laughs> uh, another one of the very memorable sections was the SSN, which is a cruise ship that uh, takes off from one of the ports in the game. And um, yeah, it doesn't, I don't, I think it just kind of returns to home port afterwards, but it, uh, 
it's just a really interesting diversion. You're just on this cruise ship. You're going through each of the rooms and battling all the trainers, and you have to have to battle the captain at the end of it. And it's uh, you know, it's just it's interesting to be in a little bit more of a contained space at the time. Yeah. Any other kind of interesting little bits and pieces of the game that that particularly stand out to you? There's a casino. There's an underground gangster headquarters with moving pathways like it, it, what what stands out to you in your memory i would say so i think firstly just to speak to the journey what i like about it is that there's an element of predictability about it in the sense of you do a like a set piece or you know we've spoken about the ssn and and the lavender mm-hmm. town um tower and then you want to do a gym so it's it's super predictable and, and very kind of like comfort food to play one of the the parts of the game that i think is incredibly clever and really compelling is the viridian forest which is a, a home to bug types and mm-hmm. and I, I think it's a really kind of neat almost sort of like um parallel with uh almost like a like a the life cycle of an insect you can capture insect type pokemon that aren't particularly very powerful but will evolve really quickly to their their final form in the same way that the life cycle of an insect has so it's just a really kind of neat sort of demonstration of how they've tried to weave in very real um components of of science and the life cycle into this normally quite quite a basic game in that regard specific parts of gem one have never really stuck out to me all that much except for i really didn't like the cave sections as a kid i just yeah. i didn't like the pokemon that Zubats. much and yeah <laughs> mm. and it just i don't know i just found them incredibly annoying and just like not fun to navigate the thing that kind of strikes me is things like the ssn and the variety that you had from going to uh, the seafoam islands and the cinnabar islands and and all of the different kind of areas that you got to to explore it just it felt huge and now it's kind of ridiculous to think and obviously it all fitted on one cartridge but it felt like a really expansive world just say for context around the cave, uh, because this is something that has been a kind of long time complaint um, by Pokemon players, is that um, as you're journeying throughout the world, you can encounter wild Pokemon, which is a way to either catch them to gain additional party members uh, to use regular JRPG lingo, or to raise EXP by defeating them in battle. Um, you don't get as much EXP for fighting wild Pokemon as you would for an equally leveled Pokemon from another trainer, but trainer battles are limited um, in that uh, you can't rematch trainers that you had previously beaten. So sometimes you do have to go out into the grass and grind for a bit. But um, each of these uh, wild Pokemon encounters would be contained to patches of tall grass. And as you're walking through them, you can be challenged. But if you're not in the tall grass, then you uh, can't be challenged. But there are a couple of portions of the game, like when you're surfing on bodies of water you can be challenged at any time and when you're walking through caves you can be challenged at any time and so um zubats spawn um incessantly in the caves (sighs) and will trigger random battles it feels like almost every step you take from time to time guaranteed to cause cast confusion as well um there are some additional kind of frustrations like uh, i don't remember if this was gen 1 or gen 2 but uh some caves are dark until you light them up using a flash move. It's That's in Gem 1 as well. It's okay. there from the beginning. Yeah, but uh, this is a few things about the caves and especially the frequent Zubat battles that, um, that tend to drive Pokemon players a little bit crazy. Yeah, and I think you talk about the, the fact that there's eight different gyms spread across maybe 12 cities and there's uh, some of the buildings and stuff in the cities have 
what are essentially large dungeons in them as well and the caves are kind of like dungeons so it does it does feel when you break it down it does have that jrpg or not even necessarily jrpg maybe something like a zelda style uh series of well we've got a big dungeon here then there's a bit of overworld then there's a boss blah 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 um but i think one of my not really complaints but one of the slight frustrations i have with gem one is that some of the caves and things that you are forced to go through are really complicated especially when you've also then got the mm. random pokemon battles thrown in what mm. can be every few steps like there's a few places um that have all sorts of intricate puzzles sort of switches and rocks that you have to push around to do things like um block the flow of water so that you can uh, you can swim through an area and there's what is it the Silfco building or the team mm-hmm. rocket headquarters one of them has the moving things on the floor that kind of you can only move in the direction that the arrows are pointing one of them is full of teleportation yeah. yeah i think i think the one that's got the warp pads the building is something like 15 floors as well it's huge and these are in gen one at least these things are all pretty much in force that you have to go through i found comparing that to gen two there was a lot less of the the really complicated things that you have to do the the very complicated dungeons and things that i did in gen two were normally optional to get to a legendary pokemon or to to do something else whereas gen one sort of chucks you right into the deep end and uh, makes sure that you you go through all of that stuff yeah, it kind of, um, for people who's this was their first RPG, it sort of drilled into you, save at every opportunity that you have, because, yeah, it's just it just started the, um, the trend of me of just feeling uncomfortable watching people play games for long times and not save, because you could lose huge chunks of time in Pokemon if you weren't careful. Um, this also kind of began the tradition of having somewhat of a post-game. Um, Pokemon post-games have become... I'd say as the series went on, um, probably starting around, I mean, even in Gen 2, if you consider the latter half of that game to be post-game, like, and especially picking up in uh, in Gen 3 with uh, Ruby and Sapphire and especially Emerald, um, post-games really became the thing that you play Pokemon games for. Like, the stories were more of a formality at that point. Like, you get through the Elite Four and then the series really begins uh then the game really begins and uh, in this case there's not that much post game but there is still consideration for additional challenges that you can complete after completing the uh, elite four there's um there are three legendary birds that you can attempt to catch uh they are they are not chance encounters they are located uh, and they actually have overworld sprites um that you can find in very specific places in the world and optional dungeons yeah, they're not perhaps as useful as some of the legendaries later in the series, but um, still kind of a neat collector's item, especially, you know, great leverage for trading and stuff like that. Uh, and then there is the um, the Pokemon Mewtwo in a cave um, that you can see pretty early on, early on in the game, but is blocked by a person who, uh, for my entire time playing the game, I thought was uh, one of those British palace guards with the big black furry hats um, beef eater. because he, yeah. his sprite was standing directly in front of the cave entrance which was a uh, black doorway and um i i didn't put two and two together until i was way older um uh, but mewtwo um due to probably um well due to probably an unfortunate for the sake of the game um 
fact that uh, psychic type Pokemons in uh, in Gen One were uh, way overpowered. <laughs> like they were strong against so much, and they had relatively few weaknesses. Like they were um, they were the force to be reckoned with. That and Dragon type uh, were the forces to be reckoned with in Gen One. And so having a super strong psychic type waiting for you at the end of the game was a challenging Pokemon to catch unless you used your one master ball, a guaranteed catch uh, that you get one of in each game after completing. But uh, it was a, a great extra challenge for those who decided to catch it with uh, with regular types of Pokeballs. Speaking of the, um, the type things as well, I, I, I can't really say very much about where this goes eight generations later, but I like the fact that the types in Gen 1 are common enough that they're pretty easy to figure out that, you know, a grass mm-hmm. type is going to be weak to a fire type and a fire type is going to be weak to a water type. But you do have, you say, Psychic and Dragon in Gen 1. And I can never remember for the life of me what the matchups for Psychic are. I know that fighting is either strong or weak to it, but there's some things where you're fighting in a battle in a Pokemon the trainer it says like oh they're going to send out a fire pokemon you're like oh well i know exactly what i need to switch to for that but psychic and dragon they always get um get mixed up for me and i think that gets worse with things like ghost i guess ghost is in gen one but uh, when by the time you get to like later gens i mean how many do you end up with compared to the what is it like so there isn't in that gen many one? more so there's um fairy dark and uh, steel comes yeah. in Mm-hmm. Yeah, there, there are a few that are introduced, but most of them are found in this uh, initial entry as well. And a few of the tight matchings, like I'll admit, like even though I've been playing Pokemon for roughly my entire life, like I still, whenever I'm playing through one of these games, I pull up a type advantage chart. So we've uh, we've talked around some of these um, some of these gameplay mechanics. Before we get into some more of those details, I wanted to read a piece of correspondence from our forum. This comes from Carl the Frog, who says. I was in America for the initial wave of Pokemania. As a young boy of only five, when red and blue hit, blue for me, red for my friend Mark, I feel like Pokemon gave me an education as much as an earl- as my early schooling did. The rock-paper-scissors logic of type matchups and the block-pushing, spinning Team Rocket layer puzzles, and the game giving and the game giving me a great appreciation of the natural world. I have a strong appreciation of how games can make you think and learn and reflecting on it now the early pokemon games certainly switched my brain on as a child and uh, that's one of the things that um early pokemon players had um as they grew up uh it's a sentiment that i've heard reflected a lot and i, I really appreciate that the kind of educational value of pokemon as well we've noted already that it's not a great place to learn about evolution or anything like that but i think that uh you know a lot of the pokemon names are you you discover maybe later on are interesting references to mythological creatures or to um, natural phenomena and stuff like that would inspire kind of further curiosity and learning, expand your vocabulary. Vocabulary. Once you finish the game, like you've read a significant portion of text, and uh, there are many players who learn to read by playing Pokemon essentially and kind of being forced into it by. Um, you know, having to understand what all is happening in Pokemon. And um, there's, I think as the series goes on and there become more, more kind of behind the scenes math around, around competitive battling when it comes to special types of training and different types of experience and um, breeding, especially like there's a lot of uh, 
of players who go on to really understand fairly complex math and prob- probability due to um due to Pokemon and due to getting really in depth in these behind the scenes systems and people who say like these kids have uh, a real aptitude for really advanced mathematics that uh if we could only just kind of decouple it from the Pokemon context could unlock some uh, really um really powerful kind of educational tools as well and so yeah i i really like to uh hear that aspect of it brought up yeah the idea of like learning about fractions and square roots and things because you were trying to figure out uh you know the way that the pokeballs work like the probability mm. of catching pokemon depending on their status effects and amounts of health and stuff that's really fascinating yeah. or the flip side the idea of you know, you learn about the fact that uh, trilobites exist and that they come, you see yeah. them in fossils in the real world because <laughs> mm. you found a fossil in the game and it turned into a trilobite looking Pokemon. That's really cool. I'm not a snob about this kind of thing, but I feel like playing the games in 1999, 2000, the thing was this was back in the era of dial up internet where if you use the internet, it would block the phone line. So you couldn't be on the internet all the time and mm. internet on phones didn't exist. So like a lot of this stuff you were finding out for yourself or through rumors on the playground. And that also added to the sort of educational aspect of it that if you couldn't afford a guidebook, you just had to figure it out yourself. And that sort of like independence and stubbornness to just try things and learn through trying was definitely a part of it it's a shame that that's not stuck with me because i look things up within 30 seconds now if i don't get them but yeah that was a really big part of the educational aspect for it for me i think yeah and it's a feeling that i'll never get back again unless maybe there's future pokemon games that i play but the the kind of the awe and the wonder of seeing a pokemon that you've been fighting with start evolving and not knowing what it's going to turn into and then seeing it happen in front of your eyes uh, that that was a real kind of like childhood joy that I got from from seeing that happen, especially with sort of rare Pokemon or like the third evolutions and stuff where nobody else had, had already yeah. told you what they were yet. I know that we're kind of committed to staying away from personal anecdotes and I wanted to, to not necessarily bring this up, but this feels like a really natural place to kind of discuss this. Like I've spoken in quite a few Canarins episodes about how my sons two of my three sons have autism one of which mm-hmm. has quite profound autism and his autism manifests through his relationship with pokemon and the way that he's engaged with things like etymology taxonomy um all those kind of things to do with like how names are derived and he picks mm. up the sort of like language the the uses of certain kind of phrases within the, like his relationship with pokemon that have really broadened his experiences and helped him to kind of like almost deviate slightly from that very fixated relationship that he's got with Pokemon into other branches. So things like science and nature. And I think that's sort of something that needs to be brought out. And it's purely because Pokemon is such a kind of reliable and predictable, but in a good way, um, resource of of knowledge and um, creativity for people who who have autism. And I imagine that there's many people who have the exact same relationship for the exact same reason. That's terrific. Yeah, it, it it is worth noting that um, each of the Pokemon names, um, I'd say for the most part anyways, have some sort of a root in uh, a pun off of something or usually a kind of a combination of two different words. A Charmander is kind of like a uh, salamander that is involved Charles. in charring things. Yeah. <laughs> and then you've got the likes of Hitmonlee and Hitmonchan, which is... Weird. It's probably clearly somebody's bizarre relationship with um like Hong Kong cinema and such. Yeah. 
let's uh, let's get into the actual the actual gameplay. We've uh, we talked about uh, elemental kind of type pairings. How there will be um, certain Pokemon that are strong or weak against different types. Um, at this point in the series, I believe every Pokemon only had one type. We get dual types later on in the series where somebody will be you know ice and flying. Um, I don't remember did. Were there dual types in Gen 1 as well? I think everybody had a dedicated type, but they were okay. able to draw upon a range of moves that were right, of right. a different type. Yeah, dual types, I think, really kind of uh, made things a lot more interesting later on because then there were potentially more types of things that a Pokemon was weak against or strong against, and you really had to uh, weigh that and consider that when you're um, when you're choosing your Pokemon for battles, and there was always the opportunity, very rarely, but there was the opportunity for for a certain type of attack that both of the enemy's types were weak against, and you can get that sweet times four damage instead of times two, and um, I guess get your one hit KOs even quicker. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, anyways, single types in this um, in this first game. But uh, yeah, a lot of the game is built around this battling system. So there are a few kind of interesting features here. Uh, it is turn-based, like a lot of JRPGs. Um, you can, at the uh, for each of your turns, you can either use one of your four attacks, or you can use an item. You can switch out your Pokemon, which basically spends an entire turn, uh, meaning that it might have been viable early on in the series, but now in the one-hit KO uh, era of Pokemon, like switching out your Pokemon is something you should really never do because it might not last for the you know that second turn in which you would be getting in your first attack, anyways. Uh, but it was more of a consideration early on, and you can run from wild battles. You cannot run from trainer battles. Included in the uh, use of items are pokeballs that you can throw at wild pokemon again not trainer pokemon um, that you can uh, attempt to catch them the lower their health is when you throw the pokeball and the uh, any kind of status effect like if they're asleep or paralyzed or frozen or burned or poisoned those will help your chances of catching it but there is still an element of random chance unless you're using the master ball but uh it's a few other kind of interesting mechanics that kind of keep things fresh. Um, each of the moves, uh, each of the attacks have a certain number of PP, I think power points it was, uh, that, um, that you know, you can only use an attack so many times before that move is exhausted and you would either have to use an item to refill um, those points or go back to a Pokemon Center to uh, heal your Pokemon and restore all of those. Um, and once you run out of uh, out of points for all of your moves, then you can use a move called Struggle, which does damage your enemy, but it also hurts yourself. So it's kind of a way to rapidly close out a battle that had at that point been dragging on for too long. Um, so any um, any I guess uh, thoughts around the battle or catching systems in the game? I always remember the misery of trying to catch an Abra, which had only mm. one move, Teleport, yep. um, at the beginning of the game for a nice, powerful, psychic Pokemon. And just, it was a, a real crapshoot. You, you had no kind of guarantee that you were going to uh, catch it at all. So something that um, that stands out to me about the, the catching mechanic there. Yeah, and I, I don't know if they do this in, um, in Gen 1 at all, but certainly in Gen 2, 
there are certain Pokemon that will flee from you in battle as well. Mm, that's what Abra does, yeah. That's as bad as teleporting away, but I found, I think there were Dratinis towards the mm. end of Gen 2 that did it. There's the little teddy bear Pokemon runaway. Mm-hmm. Cubones or Marowak were doing it. So it has, nothing is more frustrating than spending time trying to catch a Pokemon and either either hitting them too hard and getting that, that sort of aspect wrong and knocking them out or having them just run off in the middle of it especially if you started burning items and things on them. Yeah, the Abra family uh, was one of the real desirable. Um, catching an Abra in the wild, um, you might be able to catch Kadabras later on. I don't remember. It might just be Abras. But um, that was uh, because psychic Pokemon were so highly sought after. Um, Abra, you know, before you can catch a Mewtwo, Abra was really the one that you wanted uh, because it could evolve into a Kadabra, which could evolve into an Alakazam, which is a very, very strong Pokemon, but uh, only could evolve if it was traded to another player, which is an interesting wrinkle. Um, a few of the Pokemon, actually several of the best Pokemon in this game uh, were only trade evolves. Uh, Machamp, uh, Gengar, you can only get through trading. And Golem. um Golem. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so, you know, it was it was a very desirable thing. It required a lot of uh a lot of trust in your friend that you were that you know, you had your cadaver that you traded up, uh you've leveled up a lot, you trade it to them and uh had the understanding and it's like we are going to trade this back afterwards. I want my Alakazam. Uh but they could just uh could just do away with it. Um but it has been kind of a tradition throughout the series. They've moved away a little bit from those straight kind of like trading evolutions. You'll still see it every once in a while, but it's not as common. But sometimes Pokemon would only evolve if you were to trade them while they held an item. Um, sometimes Pokemon, uh, sometimes there are really weird and wacky ways that Pokemon evolve, like uh, past a certain um, level threshold. If you if you level a poke, uh, this particular Pokemon up while holding your Nintendo DS upside down, then it will evolve mm. and, it, and stuff what? like that. Uh, so, it, get, yeah. it gets really wild in, um, towards the later ones. Holding an item and spinning around in a circle, for example, does yeah, the, yeah. the evolution <laughs> of certain things. But what I'll say about the, the trading, because we've naturally moved on to there, is that the canny trade, uh, trainer would trade anyway because you get an experience boost for traded Pokemon. Mm. So whether you mm-hmm. trade that to your friend and trade that back or whatever the case may be, it is an easy way to, to drive up the experience. When it comes to uh, learning different types of attacks, you could do that by leveling up your Pokemon. There's a certain kind of certain trajectory of attacks they could learn. Actually, one of the more interesting things that I think, again, they've kind of done away with in later games in the series is that there are certain attacks that only Pokemon that are kind of earlier in the evolutionary family can learn or they learn it sooner. So, you know, like if you have a Pikachu it can learn certain types of attacks that a Raichu couldn't learn, but the Raichu is a lot stronger. And so you kind of had that, uh, that marshmallow experiment type of problem where it's like, if you can, uh, if you can keep your Pokemon from evolving for a little bit and push on with just a little baby Squirtle, then, uh, you're going to be rewarded in the long term with better attacks, with earlier access to the stronger attacks. And then you can level up to the, 
war turtle immediately and get the benefit of the increased attack and defense and uh, a more powerful Pokemon. And so that's that's interesting. Another way you can gain attacks is by using TMs and HMs, which are which are uh, machines that that can teach Pokemon specific moves. Uh, TMs are breakable. I should say that they are one-time use, rather. Once you teach a Pokemon using a TM, then the TM goes away, and so you really have to, you know, save them for the Pokemon that you really intend to be, you know, long-term party members. And HMs are, they're interesting as well. They can be used unlimited times. They don't break. They... Um, the moves that they teach are usable outside of battle. They have some sort of an external focus, like uh, fly allows you to warp between cities and um, cut allows you to cut down bushes and surf allows you to surf on top of uh, bodies of water. Oftentimes they are not that desirable in battle. And so there's a, a lot of instances of players having what they call HM slaves of uh, Pokemon that they just dump a bunch of these moves that they need for using outside of battle. Um, but, uh, you know, I think uh, a couple of those HM moves I think are pretty decent. I think fly is a good flying type attack and surf. I would always really appreciate. It was a, a pretty decent water attack as well, but, um, uh, yeah, HMs and TMs, uh, they've kind of changed the way that they do it as the series went on now, like, I think in the last couple of generations, TMs became unbreakable and HMs have gone away entirely because a lot of those, those surfing and flying and those types of functions are things that you like that you call Pokemon to perform for you, but they don't have to be Pokemon that you own. It's kind of like calling a taxi service. It's really weird, but um, uh, that's not much of a consideration anymore. But in uh, Sword and Shield, for some reason... Though TMs are break are, are not breakable, though TMs are you know eternal use, they I guess they had second thoughts on that and decided there is a utility for single use uh, you know attack teaching devices, and so they've reintroduced something they call TRs that basically work exactly like TMs did in the early games, and the TMs are now basically HMs with no outside battle uses, so it's just, it's weird for long-term players, but uh, it's uh, not too much to wrap your mind around if you're uh, if you're new to the newer generations. I am no stranger to a slave Pokemon. Uh, it's usually some kind of Voltorb for flash and strength and mm-hmm. Dodrio for... Or Dodri, he wishes Doduo, excuse me, for a, a fly. Just something that's going to just swamp up as many of those really rotten moves as possible. And in fact, actually, it did get to the extent where I just didn't bother teaching anything uh, flash. I'll just wander around in the dark and try and find <laughs> my way around without actually having to do that because it was... There was singly the most frustrating experience having to give up one of those precious move slots for a, what is essentially a, an absolutely useless technique. Let's move on to Pocket Monsters Gold and Silver, or uh, Pokemon Gold and Silver, as they were known in uh, the rest of the world, with Crystal Version being the third version to follow that one on as well. Um, Pocket Monsters Gold and Silver were released in Japan in November 21st of 1999, and Pokemon Gold Version, Silver Version... Uh, were released October 13th to 15th of 2000 uh, in Australia and North America and not until 2001 in Europe. 
Um, there were also DS remakes of uh, Gold and Silver called Pokemon Heart Gold and Soul Silver that were released in 2009 in Japan and 2010 in North America, Australia, and Europe, rest of the world anyways. Uh, so anyways, these were also developed by Game Freak, published by Nintendo, directed by Satoshi Tajiri, uh, designed by Satoshi Tajiri and Junichi Masuda, and uh, a lot of similar names between these two games. A lot of consolidation of roles, though. And so you see that uh, Ken Sugimori became the sole artist uh, for this one. Yeah, again, it did uh, did very well. It was, at the time, the fastest-selling video game of all time, I believe. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean the highest number, just the quickest out the gate. Um, game rankings has this one placed at an 89% with IMDB, uh, rating this one at an 8.8. And so that is, um, uh, just kind of a swap between the two that you saw in, uh, red and blue, uh, sales. This one sold 23.1 million copies between gold and silver. So, uh, the development of this game is a bit of an interesting cookie as well. With financial resources almost entirely drained after Red, Green, and Blue's development, Game Freak and its staff had to take on work on other game projects before returning to the world of Pocket Monsters. Uh, despite its success, they just didn't have the money that they needed to produce another Pokemon game. Uh, when full-time development of Gold and Silver started, it was uh, really not progressing well. Um, the original Red and Blue, which the code base was kind of built on top of, was rather haphazardly coded by a number of different individuals, and uh, it's kind of notorious how poor the code was organized. It really only made sense to those who programmed it, and oftentimes only the sections that they programmed. Progression was not going well. Um, with all of its pro uh, problems, though, it was never scaled back in scope. It uh, maybe should have been, but, uh, you know, they were able to finish off the project at the full scope that they intended at the beginning, which is uh, kind of a miracle. The primary source of inspiration for Gold and Silver was a desire to reflect the real history and culture of the Kyoto and Nara regions of Japan, focusing on the traditional Japanese towns and the towers often found within. Um, Game Informer quotes uh, Masuda, telling stories about how he rode cabs around the region, talking to the drivers to learn about the Toji Tower in particular in the east and its sister tower in the west that had been burned down. And you can see direct uh, parallels with that in Gold and Silver and the uh, towers that hold the legendary birds. Even though the size of the cartridge doubled from the Kanto-era games from 2 megabit to 4 megabit, the team was uh, hitting brick wall after brick wall during development. And um, source code, as I mentioned, was an absolute mess and was really starting to fall in on itself. Um, oddly enough, Satoru Iwata, who was not a employee of Game Freak nor an employee of Nintendo, he was the president of HAL Laboratory, um, was, uh, was very interested in this project. And um, he stepped in and basically volunteered in his free time to read through the code he made extensive notes and basically rewrote a significant portion of it himself and left his own notes uh, basically he cleaned up the code made it a lot more efficient made it read a lot more cleanly to anyone else who could uh, who would jump into it at that point and um, really saved the game and made the inclusion of kanto the region from the po first pokemon game in um 
possible, uh, which, you know, for context, after you go through the new, uh, the new region, Johto, uh, in this game, after you kind of complete your Pokemon journey, you are given a ticket to go back to the original continent. It is three years afterwards and things are quite different in the Kanto region, but, uh, it was really kind of a mind-blowing revelation at the time. He and he also made the localization task of Red and Blue possible. Uh, without him, you know, Pokemon might never have come to the outside world. So another thing to thank Iwata-san for. Uh, anyways, I guess briefly, how how was the transition from Red to uh, Red, Red and Blue to Gold and Silver for each of us? Um, for me, it was um. I I was a huge red and blue fan. I played so much of that. I remember I was I was visiting my grandma and we went to a Barnes and Noble and in the video game section I found a guide, like a player's guide for a Japanese import of Gold and Silver. And so it wasn't the actual game, but it was like a pretty comprehensive player's guide with all of the new areas and all of the new Pokémon and their sprites and stuff and it wasn't localized yet. And so all of the Pokemon had their Japanese names. And so I got to know, like, I I treasured that guide more than anything else I owned. Like, it was, I would read that thing cover to cover all the time. And so, you know, it was interesting when I actually played Gold and Silver, it was like revisiting a world that I already knew pretty well. But uh, it's so exciting, like, reading about all the new Pokemon and getting excited about the new designs and stuff like that. Like, I just, it was such a, such a visceral memory. <laughs> Uh, anyone else have any kind of interesting stories about making that leap into Generation 2? Um, just what I kind of said in my introduction, that I can't remember when I got Silver, when I got Crystal, because I had both. But I, I, I'm pretty sure it was more around about the same time as my peers, whereas with Yellow, I got it very late and never played Red or Blue. So it was really, I was experiencing the excitement around about the same time as everybody else. And the fact that for me as a small kid, it just, it felt like what I was used to from yellow, but more and, and fancier stuff that I was like, wow, this game can really do that. Like the whole phone system and the, uh, the new Pokeballs that were sort of more tailor-made to what you wanted to do with them. And just all that stuff was just so exciting and just having more Pokemon to catch. And for me, it was always about the aesthetic of the Pokemon I, I liked the normal type because I, I just, as a as a young child, I was a little bit of a stereotypical girl child, I guess, and that I just wanted to catch the cute Pokemon. And so I super got into the breeding because <laughs> I just wanted to make a load of cute Pokemon. So for me, it was, it was fantastic. I was just uh, thrilled to play it, like more so than yellow, I'd say. I'm going to I'm going to out myself in, in this particular moment because um I didn't actually pick up gold or silver until like a lot long later. Um what I did do however is because it was around about 2001 uh when it came out in the EU area um just downloaded a ROM of it and why not just play it through a, an emulator and unfortunately I could never find a ROM that was fully um translated it was always rife and replete with swearing all over the place and always partially um partially translated up, up to I want to say maybe the the second to last gym. Um I I I, I want to say I made that decision because um uh, of some kind of honorable reason but it was probably just because I was such a fan of the initial one and um I also knew that a lot of my peers had dropped off Pokemon at that point so there just wasn't that infrastructure that we talked about a little bit earlier to to do that. 
Um, so I don't have a, a really neat anecdote about jumping on with Pokemon Gold and, and Silver, but uh, an honest one. <laughs> so there you are. Yeah, and kind of much similar. Uh, we said before, like Pokemon Gold, uh, Pokemon Red and Blue came out in the UK when I was 13. I was closer to 16 by the time this one came out. So our entire friends group and everything had basically dropped off and instead of trading pokemon in the playground at lunchtime you know we were hanging around the back of the scout hut smoking and running away from the teachers when they turned up so we didn't didn't really have any any um concurrent experience with this so weirdly my first ever time visiting uh the johto region was in 2010 when uh the remakes came out on the ds and i still find it slightly bizarre that at that point at 25 I then went back and, you know, while doing other very serious things, like uh, I was in a job where I was like drafting legal documents to be passed up in like the high court of Australia. I was coming home at the end of the day and playing bloody Pokemon. Um, and I, that seems rather incongruous to have that kind of 10 years previously, I'd felt myself too grown up for it. And then at this point where I was arguably doing incredibly grown up things, I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll give Pokemon another bash. But um yeah, weirdly, again, that, that kind of memory has faded a little bit, and I don't remember that much about it. But my, my main um, experience with, with this generation now is basically the last, what is it, two months or so, I've spent playing through both blue and then gold. And there's a thing, I, I really, really like what they did with Gen 2. I really appreciate some of the, the more major changes that they've got with it. But from going going directly from playing basically 50 hours of blue to then switching consoles over and playing 50 hours of gold, I mean, the one, one like big thing is that eventually you just reach a point of burnout. And especially with the way that gold plays now on... I've got an original Game Boy cartridge of it with uh, an original GBA SP. And it's like the battery thing on that. That is now garbage. It lasts for a couple of hours. It has all sorts of... Maybe there's like wiring problems with it or something. It randomly turns off or resets. And it's just... It's a difficult thing for me to sit down and, and smash out the time on it, especially with the, the games back-to-back. So unfortunately, I didn't didn't get all the way to the very end of, of Gold. I mean, to the end of Kanto, I'll say. I got the, the gym badges all out of Johto and enjoyed my time with it. But it's... I can... I can see like some of the really major leaps that they made between games and they're really, really good. But because of the the situation where I was very familiar with the original 150 Pokemon and the Kanto region, including the towns and the music and the gym leaders and stuff, and then not ever really having that same kind of formative experience with Johto, uh, I just, I don't really have the same connection with uh, the Poke- the new Pokemon, the Tyranitar. Basically, that like the entire layout of the game doesn't have that feeling of nostalgia for me, which is a bit of a shame. But I mean, still, it's still really, really good fun to play, and it's it's still clearly a big upgrade over over the original games were. So, as we mentioned, uh, there is a full kind of Pokemon game as you're traveling through the the region of Johto. There is entirely new Pokemon, uh, 100 new Pokemon actually, bringing the total up to 251. Um, I tend to still have a lot of affection for these Generation 2 monsters. Uh, I think that they retain a lot of the really 
kind of nice and clever design principles from the first generation. You know, it's really like I'm I'm not one to get snooty on later generation designs. I know it is kind of a thing that almost all Pokemon fans do. I try to, you know, just love the Pokemon for what they are. Uh, but uh, generation three, I think we do start to see a shift in the design philosophies. Uh, they start to look a little bit kind of cooler and a little bit less, you know, kind of round and plushy and cute like in the first couple generations. Um, and there are a few misses in every generation obviously but uh, i still do really like most of the uh, most of the pokemon from from second gen but there are some real weirdos out there like the unknowns which are like little like they look like the letters of the english alphabet and there's 28 of them or something like that it's super weird but um that's uh that's a whole thing i have absolutely no affection for the the pokemon in gen 2 um and to me they almost feel like things that were left on the cutting room floor of of gen 1 um and obviously we've been through some of the kind of like really what feel like missteps like the likes of uh uh unknowns and and you know like everything else just feels like almost very rote and um slightly unimaginative when compared to the, the what, what certainly felt for me like a really strong outing in the in the first one i know john like we've had a, a separate chat about this like uh in in the slack channel and and i guess like you're of the same opinion is that correct it's not so much that i dislike any of them or think that they're particularly lame more just that i don't have the the sense of sort of pre-built affection i mean there's an element of that as well like i don't don't know that there's anything in Gen 2 that I, I like as much as a lot of the Gen 1 Pokemon. And like if I was going to do a ranking of all 251, I think you'd be starting to get quite a way down the list before there were Gen 2 Pokemon starting to to break in there. Uh, but there, there's also some cool things that they've done, like adding extra evolutions to some of the mm-hmm. um, the Gen 1 Pokemon, or even what's the, the opposite of an evolution, like a pre-evolution yeah. or something. There's now like baby yeah. um, Pikachus and baby Chanseys and baby uh, uh, Clefairies and things like that. And that's that's kind of an interesting development along from where they were. In the case of Bellossom branching evolutions, which is something that became more pervasive yeah. as the series went along too. Yeah, I mean the new... What are the, like the new actual upgrades that they've managed to make to this game, like uh, being able to add in a day-night cycle, and it's—I mean—it's fairly rudimentary. Basically, even on the Game Boy Color version, it asks you what the time is when you when you first start the game and whether it uh, what day of the week it is, and then it obviously tracks as you play through. And you've got um, events that only happen on certain days, and you've got a day-night cycle where certain things happen when it's nighttime, certain things happen in the morning. And that gives you, I think, a considerably larger scope of things that you can then deal with. Like I haven't, I haven't gone that deeply into it, but I imagine that within that there are Pokemon that if they evolve during the morning, they turn into one Pokemon. If it evolves during the afternoon or whatever, it turns into a mm-hmm. different one. And there's, um, there's now a system built into this where the Pokemon can like you or dislike you. And it's, I mean, it's probably not ambiguous at all, but I never really just stumbled across that much in the game that was very explicit. This is how you make a Pokemon like you. And I'm sure that there's uh, things in there that that affects quite seriously. So I think there's, there's a, I did see a list. There's about six different Pokemon that will only evolve if they like you. And then there's what's the the two Eevee evolutions that are here? The Umbreon and yeah, Espeon. Espeon. Are they 
are they night and dark? Are they whether they like you or not? I think it does have something yeah, I think it's to do a with the friendship level. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So just the the ability to add that extra wrinkle on top of what was what was already built in is um, it's something that probably you get more out of than than the kind of the the amount of effort that goes into it. As we mentioned, uh, once you defeat the Elite Four in Johto. Or actually, there is no Elite Four in Johto. That is the uh, the impetus to get you to go over to Kanto, um, the region from the first Pokemon game, to challenge the Elite Four at the end of Victory Road there. And uh, the post-game, um, once you defeat the Elite Four, you can travel the entire region of Kanto. It is a little bit shrunk down, uh, so it's not a one-to-one recreation of the Kanto map from the first game. Um, some of the routes have been abbreviated and some of the placement of objects have changed and such. But um, uh, for the most part, each of the kind of major landmarks is there anyways. Um, it's three years on. And so, you know, some some time has passed. Uh, some of the gyms have changed hands. A lot of the gym leaders are the same, but uh, some of them have have been shaken up with some new faces, which is kind of cool as well. Some of the, uh, actually one of the gym leaders from, uh, from Gen 1 ended up in the Elite Four of Gen 2, Koga, uh, the Poison Master. Um, and uh, I think Bruno was the fighting dojo master as well oh, yeah, in yeah, Gen right. 1. So and not a gym I mean, leader, but uh, definitely yeah, somebody you would have encountered. Yeah, it's not officially a gym, but yeah. Yeah, close enough. Um, and then once you defeat the Elite Four, you can go to Mount Silver, where you can fight against a mysterious silent trainer named red who is the uh, protagonist from the first pokemon generation and that is the most challenging battle in the game <laughs> he fights you with a pikachu espion snorlax Ven- venusaur charizard and blastoise so you better come prepared can we have a quick chat about the gym leaders in 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 gold so the, yeah, the kind of like core mm. gym leaders one of the like pervasive feelings that I have about gold is that it, while it brings a lot of um, advantages and, and advancements for that matter, it, it always felt to me like Pokemon Generation 1.5 as opposed to a new generation. And part of that is to do with the way that you cut through the game. So if we look at some of the gym leaders, for instance, like the very first ones, you've got Faulkner, who's the, the, the flying type, Bugsy, who's the bug type, and then Whitney, who's the normal type. It's not until you get a good four and a bit hours in the game i want to say based on like a normal trajectory before you start to see a lot of these new generation pokemon being used as uh the gym leader so falconer has a pidgey and a pidgeotto whereas he could have used any number of flying type Mm. pokemon from the uh from uh, the generation two um so it kind of like i i was always maybe perhaps reaching for this but of the opinion that they they, they didn't necessarily have a great deal of faith in the new type of Pokemon that they brought in and they just wanted to try and expand that. And I guess, like, to some extent, I do find the actual types that are used throughout the gym leaders to be a little bit uninspired. Like, nobody really loves the flying type or the bug type, for that matter. And then the normal type is the third type of, of Pokemon. Sorry, Charlotte, I know that you're a fan, but I was always like, <laughs> yeah, I'll pass on that. Thanks very much. It's not quite as kind of enigmatic as the... Uh, is the elemental, you know, that kind of core elemental fire, water, and, um, well, grass, I suppose, from the original game. Another uh, piece of correspondence from the forum. This comes from Bixer, who says, One of the most common praises is actually what I feel lets it down the most, the late inclusion of Kanto. While it was a miraculous feat of game development that Satoru Iwata was able to compress the second area enough to fit into a, fi- a tiny Game Boy cartridge, bigger isn't always better. The Kanto in Gold and Silver is 
is understandably quite barren compared to the first generation, but you breeze through it uh, with ease, as by that point your squad is already at least 10 to 15 levels above every trainer you'll meet, and at at least 5 levels above every gym leader too, until the end of the game when you meet Red and are somehow expected to match his squad of Pokemon in the high 80s. This is the only thing that I kind of, like, I agree with that on, uh, about Kanto feeling a little bit empty, like it, it does feel like a bit of a ghost town, and it's kind of, kind of too bad because like you grow such affection for the land, um, in the first game that once you revisit it and see it relatively unpopulated and not as much kind of like life and energy being poured into it, like obviously due to kind of developmental constraints, like you know can't expect them to do more than that, but like it does feel a little bit like oh man, something's really uh really suck the life out of my home my favorite place in the last three years you know agreed i think that um correspondence that bixa put together there's especially with the relationship with reddit is really kind of pertinent i loaded up my uh save file on my uh 3ds earlier today and saw that my entire team were at level 60 and you and and i done every single gym including the elite four and the gym from from Kanto obviously and and i'm still 20 levels below where red is and and i have no idea where i'm going to meaningfully level up to to actually put myself in competition with some of his uh his pokemon as well so it feels like almost a sort of like slightly unfair oversight and perhaps there just wasn't enough game to sustain somebody through to that that very very late game that you need to defeat red i suppose you could um manipulate the kind of telephony scheme where you can ring up um certain players for for battles because you of course get more experience for battling trainers than you do for battling wild pokemon we have some new features to highlight in this particular game. We've mentioned a few of them already. There are over, um, well, there are exactly 100 new Pokemon, including some uh, legendary dogs that migrate through the map and can be quite a headache to catch. They, um, they will either immediately or very early on in the battle run away if you encounter them as well. So you can spend quite a bit of time trying to uh, trying to end up in the same place as them and wandering through wild grass and hoping that they end up in the same screen as you from time to time. But uh, it's um, it can be quite a hassle to track down those three legendary dogs. Shiny Pokemon were introduced as well, something for the, uh, the real collectors to get into um, that have become a, an absolute obsession for some people ever since then. Um, it was, I think, really well introduced here. Like, there is a very, 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 very small percentage chance that any Pokemon you encounter in the wild is going to be shiny. Um, people have worked out exact percentages and ways to increase that percentage and items that can increase the percentage of uh, encountering wild Pokemon. And people that desire shiny legendaries that spend hours and hours and hours of days and weeks and months basically saving before encountering a legendary and and then resetting the game and hoping that the game serves them a shiny variant of it from time to time. But it, it was it introduced shiny Pokemon by uh, allowing you to catch a a red Gyarados at one point, which is the shiny variant of Gyarados. Um, you can find it just kind of floating out in the middle of the Lake of Rage, and uh, I think it's kind of a cool way to introduce this concept that. Uh, Occasionally, there are Pokemon that have different color schemes. They're very rare, but here's one that everyone gets. Nearly all of the Pokemon have genders now, so you can have male and female of almost every type of Pokemon, and you can now breed Pokemon at 
um, Pokemon breeders, the daycares. If you leave two Pokemon in the same egg group together, or if you leave a Pokemon and a Ditto together, then uh, you can come back, get an egg, walk around a little bit. It'll hatch into the first Pokemon in that evolutionary line. Uh, there are new elemental types, Steel and Dark type, introduced here. Real-time day-night cycles, including Pokemon that can only be caught at certain times of the day. Um, Pokemon are now able to hold items. Some of them have in-battle effects. Sometimes it's... Uh, uh, they can be used for um, trading items to other care to other players, or um, I don't remember if uh, special evolutions that required you to hold spe- uh, certain items were introduced this early on, but they certainly did come. Yeah, it would have been for Por- Porygon 2 at least. The Pokédex was upgraded to the Poké Gear, which includes some additional features like a cell phone that allow you to call and rematch um, various trainers you had beaten at earlier points in the game. Uh, there were specialized Pokeballs, like Pokeballs that ca- help you catch water or bug Pokemon or Pokeballs that are better at catching Pokemon at different times of day that you can uh, craft out of Apricorns, which you can find on trees throughout the game. Um, there is better bag organization. There are various pockets that the different items can go into, making things easier to find. And the Pokerus was introduced. We won't go into a lot of depth here, but it is Basically like a Pokemon virus, not a, not a virus in the way that Missing No was, uh, was a, a glitch, but a virus in the way that COVID-19 is a virus. Um, it is a contagious virus that Pokemon can catch, but it doesn't have really negative effects. It's very rare to encounter a Pokemon with Pokerus, but once you catch one, then it starts spreading to other Pokemon that they battle with or that are in the party at the same time. I think it, the uh, online it says that there is somewhere around a 1 in 21,845 chance of encountering a Pokemon with Pokerus. But again, once it spreads, it's really easy to spread. And um, Pokerus doubles the uh, special experience, which is kind of a uh, one of the hidden metrics that Pokemon use to get stronger. So those who, those who do a lot of um, high-level you know, EV training and stuff like that... Uh, will uh, seek out Pokemon with Pokerus. And because it's so easy to spread, you can find them everywhere these days. A crystal version followed on from that. Uh, Suicune, which was one of the migrating legendary dogs, is now the box legendary. And the um, focus of uh, new elements of the story, uh, some story elements were added in this third version. Um, This was the first mainline handheld game to feature animations for every Pokemon. This was in fact removed in Ruby Sapphire, Fire Red, and Leaf Green, and not reintroduced until Pokemon Emerald. Um, This was also the first Pokemon game to allow players to choose the sex of the character, which, uh, as we mentioned before, um, kind of a neat step forward. And the Battle Tower was added. Um, Probably too much to explain here, but uh, if you're a Pokemon fan... Uh, who really gets into the competitive battling and EV training and uh, rare items and stuff like that, you you probably know the Battle Tower or its um, variations from throughout the series. Before moving off of Gen 2, uh, we should uh, at least pay a little bit of lip service to the legendary birds Ho-Oh and Lugia. Lugia developed for the second Pokemon movie, Pokemon the Movie 2000. And um, uh, yeah, they were uh, they were the... Uh, legendaries exclusive to each well is that true even could you catch both legendaries in just like very very post game 
I don't remember. I think so. I think yeah. I got them on crystal. It's feasible. Yeah. Right, right. In the, uh, I was reading up because I was playing gold. So I managed to catch Ho O because you get the the item. It's a rainbow wing mm-hmm. or something like that. You get it during the Johto section. And I was reading that you can get Lugia as well, but you've got uh, to got wait it. until you're halfway through Kanto or something like that yeah, to that get that right. item. Yeah. So, anyways, a couple of additional legendary birds. Um, I, I really like Lugia's design. He's so different from all the Pokemon that came before, but I can imagine that would be, be a bit of a polarizing one. I find Ho-Oh a little boring. It kind of looks like a standard like Phoenix type of design, like a Chinese Phoenix, but... Uh, Turkey. Mm. Seems a little plain. Mm. Anyways, let's, uh, let's move on to our three-word reviews. We've heard a couple of, of longer correspondence from various members of our community, and we have some reviews for two generations of pokemon in only three words uh coming from our twitter we post out the day of recording every time we do any recording so uh i'll start us off with joba bonobo who says caught them all chase 210 says charmander best starter uh, mr Ixolite says eater of batteries danny spateri says best ending surprise Deadbeat Punk, Mew Under Truck. Dull Instrument, One Sequel's Enough. Darth Vanquish says Kids Dogfighting Simulator. Billy Goss says Sitting Under Lamp. Name of the Nerd says Nostalgic Music Always. Tree Smith says Unlike Anything Before. A Real Dave Jackson, Shorts Are Comfy. One Credit Classics, Surf Em All. Alex Powell, Didn't Age Well. Ludo Narrative FM, Ooh, A Bite. Uh, Mute Branches says Under That Truck. Bearfish Pie says, I chose blue. Red Roman says, genre-defining classics. And Cal DPM says, visit Kanto again? Great. As we wrap up Pokemon, I thought it'd be useful to go through a few kind of interesting influences and legacy of the series. Obviously, the series was uh, influenced by... uh, by Ultraman, as we mentioned at the very beginning of the show, and also by Satoshi Tajiri's childhood hobby of collecting bugs, which I think is quite nice. It was uh, preceded by the Shin Megami Tensei series, which also features a monster capture and battle um, mechanical type of system. You might know that series better now by its Persona spinoffs, which feature kind of similar capturing types of uh, mechanics as well to use along your demon team. Uh, but Pokemon went on to inspire many, many imitators uh, in its time. Uh, Digimon was a pretty one-to-one uh, ripoff. I don't want to call it that. A uh, That might be a fair word, though. <laughs> was very, very clearly inspired by the Pokemon craze. Um, Dragon Quest Monsters was a spinoff of the Dragon Quest series that uh, featured similar kind of battling mechanics of uh, capturing monsters. Yokai Watch, uh, Nino Kuni. There's uh, so many of uh, these types of JRPGs that now allow you to capture monsters along the way and battle them, as well as uh, several games uh, recently, like Ooblets, um, several indie games that kind of follow on from this this style of gameplay. It's kind of cool to see it making an indie resurgence as well. And of course, it spawned an entire franchise of spin-off games, trading card games, anime series, so many more things than we could ever hope to mention. The, the, at least Gen 1 is a pretty classic speedrunning game because you can do so much with it just by counting steps to influence the um, random number generator in the game, really. Um, it's possible to do things like complete the game, get to like the, the Hall of Fame sort of screen 
in a few minutes if you press the right <laughs> things in the right combination and re reset the console at the right time. Um, I I can't like this. This wasn't something I because I I looked into learning the speed run of yellow at one point, but um, with I know with red and blue you can complete it in backwards. Basically, you can do the gyms backwards, but I've not really like done much research into how that works but basically because of the coding as we've already talked about the coding was kind of messy and you can sort of rewrite into memory you're not supposed to write into there's just all sorts you can do with the first game and as the series went on it carried on in the the frame of um you can influence the random number generator by counting steps so yeah it's, it's a pretty infamous um game series in the speedrunning world so if you are interested in speedrunning, then Pokemon's not a bad series to look into. Very cool. Love I'd to hear those like kinds of things. Point, um, I'd like to point out that I have seen some some kind of challenge runs and things of this, including some uh, speedruns that are for collecting all. I think it's. I think they do 150 po uh, 151 Pokemon runs in in Gen One games, and they are wild. It is almost incomprehensible trying to watch these runs and figure out what they're doing. There's so much of it that's just like messing around in menus and pressing certain buttons at certain times like you said and they're warping to different areas to catch things and certain stuff just literally happens in the menu or on like a blank screen it's really bizarre to 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 witness some of this stuff going down but the other thing that is possibly notable especially seeing as we're not like that deep on time here is um twitch plays pokemon which was a really interesting yes, really course. kind of ridiculous little experiment i'm pretty sure it was the first incarnation of like twitch plays anything before they moved on and did even more wild stuff like dark souls but i, I guess that that's partly doable because the interface certainly in the original games uh the original generations is so basic that it is like moving on a chess grid and every every input does a specific thing whether it's move your character forwards or backwards or pick something off a menu or kind of you know, try and search a square or something. So it made for a really, like, I, I guess an obvious thing that you could try and program into this um, this situation with Twitch. And I'm not I'm not 100% sure how it works. Maybe one of you other um, folk has got a, a better kind of example. But from what I understood, they had a setup where uh, people in the Twitch chat were commenting and the mm -hmm. the inputs that people were commenting or voting on in polls were then used in the game and it turned into apparently like sort of a week-long wild experiment of these large, large numbers of people eventually trying to figure out how to get through the game while like undergoing all of the kind of internet streaming nonsense that you'd expect of people trying to troll them and trying to ruin the game and like letting their their sort of starter Pokemon go free and some like notoriously horrible bits of the game where you've got to walk along very narrow ledges <laughs> and take, you know, sort of eight steps in the same direction. And if you go down instead of right, you have to go all the way back around mm -hmm. and start again. And yeah, it, I'm sure that there are plenty of... Um, sort of youtube videos summarizing the events of twitch plays pokemon and it's it's something that's worth looking into if you're interested in that sort of thing um just to, i want to shout out because we have got a, a teensy bit of time um the side stuff is not something i would just dismiss as as fluff um i p put sorry the i put a lot of time into pokemon pinball as a kid and it was a pretty good game oh, yeah, certainly. what i remember very fun um 
to the point where I would sit with my uh, Game Boy Color plugged into the wall to play it so I didn't chew through batteries as fast. Um, yeah, the, the trading card game for Game Boy Color is maybe not as good, but it I, it was okay what I played of it. Might be worth a try. Um, one thing that's really been taking off is there's been some um, Pokemon card unboxing videos on YouTube, and they're kind of interesting to watch just to see like the psychology behind what makes YouTube unboxing channels successful and just to see... Like, I had sacks full of Pokemon cards that were just shoved under my bed. I try not to think about how much some of those cards might be worth now because they're in the bin. They they went in the bin a decade ago. But yeah, there's, there's all sorts of sort of round the edges cultural things about Pokemon that have died and then resurged. And it's just, you know, it completely took off back in the 90s and it's bits of it just still come back to life now and then. Mm. And and while we're jumping on some sort of the the cultural zeitgeist that um that kind of comes out of Pokemon, one thing that I would recommend is is checking out some videos of Nuzlocke playthroughs of Pokemon. Yes, which is mm. all, all, almost like a, a fan made um series of rules, not unlike something like XCOM or Fire Emblem, where when your Pokemon KOs, you release it, and you're only allowed to catch the first Pokemon in uh, an area, and you have to give them a name so it has its own personality and its own meaning to you. And of course, you're not allowed to use um, healing items within games, and it just makes it for a, a really compelling experience because these games are not especially difficult. Yeah, the Pokemon community has uh, has done a lot of really interesting things to keep, especially these early generation games, um, really fresh throughout. Twitch plays Pokemon. There's um, there's now a user on Twitter that allows you to play Pokemon in their avatar. They refresh screenshots of an emulator that's playing Pokemon every so often. I don't know what the interval is, but uh, people can at that particular user uh, with button inputs, and um, it aggregates them and uh, and performs those actions in game. You can check on the avatar to see where where they are in the game. I think they've beaten it by this point, uh, the Twitter community at large. Absolutely wild. But uh, I was there for the uh, conclusion of Twitch Plays Pokemon. I was taking a study break and just happened to see the victory uh, through the Elite Four. is very exciting. <laughs> Anyways, um, let's wrap up with our own summaries of the game. Uh, Rich, would you like to give us a strong start? Yes, please. And I have to say, I'm really pleased that you came to me first because uh, I get to speak nice and broadly about about Pokemon, something that's obviously quite personal to, to probably every one of the panelists here. So um, I guess I'll start by just saying uh, this has been a really challenging podcast. It's so woven in with um, like a, a cultural zeitgeist of the the you know the the Pokemania that came about, and it's also obviously hit many of of the panelists that are really formed time in their life. I have ragged on Generation 2 a little bit, but it's still a, an incredibly uh, well put together game and an excellent experience. It's just that I have a lot more familiarity with uh, the, the first generation and it's something that is um, like incredibly important to me. I also recognize that it's incredibly important to my son. I spoke a little bit earlier about his autism and through Pokemon, we have a, a kind of lexicon and a language with which we can communicate with one another and use it as a springboard to kind of like veer off into different discussions or create different kind of uh, challenges to to make sure that we can have that language that uh, we can communicate and, and kind of do things together. So it's 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 personally important to me as a, a nearly 35 year old man um, as, as it was for me when I was 13. 
I think that Pokemon's fascinating. There's a lot to grab a hold of. There's a lot to indulge your interests if you're interested in the art, the mechanics of the game, the multiplayer, if you like to collect, if you like the natural world element of it, and things like, we didn't really talk about it, but like the cries of the Pokemon, they're all distinct and and individual and um, recognizable in, in that regard. It's such an important game, and I think it's an important game for me sort of almost as a as a way to express myself like i like to think of it like a profiling exercise you can tell a lot about a person based around the makeup of their party or their favorite pokemon and and usually there's a story an anecdote that comes with that that um that, that just makes it quite easy to connect with somebody and um tell a lot about them based around that and um, I'm going to steal this and I, I sense that this is something that both Charlotte and John and, and perhaps yourself, Ryan, are going to say. Pokemon is a game that taught me everything that I know about JRPGs and everything that there is to do with RPGs, whether that's the kind of weaknesses, the kind of the, the regular chart that you would figure out that you would play when you're fighting an elemental uh, enemy in an RPG and quite simply no Pokemon, there would be no uh, Final Fantasy in my life. I would never have been able to comprehend or get through that game without actually having gone through Pokemon first. So it's it's kind of up there on my epic shelf. It's just difficult to express why, why as a 34-year-old man, this, this game on a Game Boy card is so special. I'm sure you guys will do a good job of uh, articulating that, though. Terrific. And that's actually kind of a fun button on this. What is your favorite Pokemon? Are you asking for, for my genuine answer? Like, I, yeah, I, I'm sure. not ashamed to admit it is Oddish. I really like the design that's of it. Terrific. I like Vileplume. I like the, the kind of... Um, yeah, I just think it's a really unique uh, acid-based monster. So it's got the poison and the, the grass type as well. It looks really cool. And um, yeah, just, um, yeah, good Pokemon. Excellent. Charlotte, how about your summary? Listeners will have probably noticed I've not gone into too much detail talking about the games. And that's because as this podcast approached, I realized I wasn't sure how much I wanted to, like, I... I rewatched the anime I read up on the games but it was almost like I didn't want to disturb the memory too much because it's really I have really fond memories of those games because it was such a simple time in my life before I went up to secondary school and nothing really bad happened but things get more complicated when you go to secondary school and it was just such a sort of pure time in my life when I just sat there and could play an RPG for hours and hours and hours on end and had nothing else to do Things like sitting in my bedroom with the sun blaring down on my face and no AC and just playing Pokemon for afternoons during the summer holidays and sitting in a a non-AC car, like, boiling to death, just playing Pokemon, plugged into the wall playing Pokemon. Like, I just have all these really fond memories of Gen 1 and Gen 2, especially Gen 2, like I say, because I came to that a bit more contemporaneously and gen one is attached with these painful memories of everybody around me playing pokemon and i hadn't received it yet and the the experience just taught me so much things like waiting to get consoles and being patient with you know not getting the new tech right away things like you know all the stats and the planning you have to do to play the game the basic mechanics of jrpg playing it's it's really informed Things like active time battle RPGs still feel wrong to me because I just always want to play turn-based RPGs. I, I just didn't want to disturb the memory too much. Um, I, I I did a bit of speedrunning of, of Yellow last year, but that didn't feel the same because I was just rushing through it and had a specific, specific uh, actions that I had to carry out. 
So in that in that sense, if you've played it already, I would say don't disturb the memory, maybe, because the thing is now that I'm I'm desperate to go back to playing Moon because it doesn't have all that nostalgia attached to it. So I'm really excited to play that, but that's the thing, it's not gonna disturb any good memories. So maybe if you have this really holy sort of on a pedestal opinion of Gen 1 and Gen 2, maybe don't go back and play it. But I think that if you've not played it yet, you definitely have to play it because it's the start of something really special. Um, and when I did play Gen 1 last year, um, big chunks of it, trying to learn the speedrun of Yellow, none of it felt really old-fashioned. It did feel a bit of a step back from what I'd played in Moon, for example, but it didn't feel noticeably like an extremely old and out-of-date game, in my opinion. So if you've not played them yet, then definitely play them. Excellent. And do you have a favorite Pokemon? My favorite Pokemon is Chansey, because just... And again, my, my memories are always completely intertwined with the anime. I just love the image of Chansey just beating up Meowth. It's just so funny to me. <laughs> Excellent. John, how about you? Yeah, I, it's really, really difficult for me to talk about the games as anything but... Uh, it just where they sit in my own head as as a point of nostalgia and a point of like history rather than to judge them on any basis of their own really their own like merits or what uh, you know what positives and negatives they have around them uh it's just happened to be that all of the hype for gen 1 and the origin of pokemon was all whirlwinding around when i was very very much in the in the point where i was intelligent enough to kind of think for myself about it and be able to know yes i want this yes i'm interested in this and and sort of everybody else at the same time school friends and everything was all totally swept up in it i think that it's the the sort of the phrase baby's first rpg is a pretty horrible derogatory term generally but it's something that like the the implication of it is it kind of sits right in that it is that first first um exposure to that type of game that a lot of very young people would have had because as we said before the the other jrpg style games were probably beyond um the comprehension of of kids who are you know maybe 10 11 or not even that at that point um but there's there's a huge amount that is still very very fun about this game even if you've never played them the the early generations are it's not not so much sort of antiquated as they are kind of a bit bit more regimented in in their own rule sets than than maybe they went on with later um my uh absolute sort of obsession and kind of ocd style nature for collecting things really really ticks off with these games and it's i mean it's an important thing to say that we haven't really discussed at all but throughout the entire franchise of these games every generation as far as i'm aware has had these two separate games that have been 90 percent the same as each other but have minor differences between things like pokedex entries read differently and some of the pokemon sprites are different across them but the main kind of function of these is that you have to be able to play through both games and trade between them to actually collect them all, which, I mean, it's it's an absolute genius marketing strategy to to absolutely put the entire um, 
it's sort of tagline of this game as you've got to catch them all, but then to catch them all, you've got to buy two separate copies of games and potentially then trade between people. And yeah, why not buy more games and then release a, a, a sort of a third conglomerated one as well? Like it's no wonder that they've sold 23 million copies of gold and silver when so many people must have had two or three of those cartridges. So, you know, they've, they've done, done well in their, whatever it is now, nearly 25 years since the, the original. And it's it's difficult to do like a full recommend if you've never really played any of the games or you've never really got any any of that fondness for them in the past. But they're still, certainly Gen 1 and Gen 2 are very solid Japanese-style RPGs. And there's a huge amount of fun to be had. The little cute sprites and the music is cool. And like I say, the collecting things, seeing numbers go up, seeing sort of little codex entries unlock is a really nice feeling. So I would absolutely recommend uh, any Pokemon games, I guess, to basically anybody. Terrific. And do you have a favorite Pokemon? Yeah, this is this is a hard one. I, there's a lot of Pokemon that I like, but my favorite is uh, Dragonite because in certainly in Gen 1, the sprite, when you see him, he's a really goofy little guy. And um, he's also very, very difficult to get. I think um, if you've never never really played, uh, or if, you've, if you've not tried to get your own Dragonite, I think the first time you even see one or see like the existence of one is possibly when you fight Lance, who's like at the end of the Elite Four. And the, mm. the way that you get one yourself is you have to get a, a Dratini or a Dragonair and it evolves at level 55 mm-hmm. into Dragonite, which is probably just about the the latest that any third evolution comes along without there being any funkiness. So and you get you get a reward for your, your persistence as well, because he is a tough Pokemon. Like the moveset that you can teach him yeah. is killer against multiple different types. So from both aesthetics and like battle prowess yeah i love a dragonite i mean aesthetically though dragonair is kind of the height of elegance like dragonite is like dragonite is like he's somebody a, that was like he's a, he's a attractive in dragon. high school but then grew up to be yeah. like a well, i mean you know what can i say maybe maybe i'm reading too much into that <laughs> you know i like it i like it that's a it's a good pokemon um all right i'll finish us off um i like pokemon gens one and two a lot like i have I, I have lots of things I like about every generation of Pokemon. I think generation three and four were kind of a little bit more of a low point after like loving generations one and two so much. And then generation five coming back with such like a strong swing. But, um, but uh, I think as the series has gone on, continuing to add new Pokemon has, I mean, it's been necessary because that's kind of the core appeal of the game for a lot of, or maybe even most players, but they do what they have to do. But in a way to like they want to keep each generation's pokemon relevant and so you continue to run into kind of a selection of pokemon across the different generations and as more and more pokemon are kind of piled onto the list you begin to see so many pokemon it's hard to really kind of take them all seriously and to treat them all you know with respect in a way like in generation one there were certain routes where you would only encounter drowsies and you would fight you know five or six of them and you would really get to know what a drowsy could do in a way that that might just be seen as kind of a throwaway pokemon in later generations that you would encounter once in the entire game and i really like that 
you know, because you would encounter some of the same Pokemon over and over again, you would really begin to like know and fear and understand their weaknesses and get like a sense of their specific personalities in ways that like, I don't feel as attached to any of the like newer kind of wild Pokemon. Um, I'm not one that really complains about newer generation designs or anything like that. I think that they're still killing it, but, uh, uh, yeah, it's just something about like oversaturation. I, I feel in the newer games, but um, I think 251 was really that sweet spot of uh, a great number of Pokemon to have. Um, I I absolutely adore uh, Gold and Silver. I think that you know Generation One was a great setup. Generation Two um, just really heightened everything that I liked about it. Plenty of additional mechanics I never really engaged with. I wasn't really a fan of the Apricorns or anything like that, but. Uh, it was such a treat to be able to go back to Kanto after completing my Johto journey. It's uh yeah, just a really it feels like a really masterful set of JRPGs, and I've uh, continued to love the series ever since. So, if people are interested in going back to the origins of Pokemon, you can do that. Obviously, emulation is always an option. Yeah, tracking down an original cart might be tricky these days because save batteries are dying. So unless they've specifically been replaced it either won't have the ability to save or it's going to be on its way out pretty quick here. But you can uh, you can play these games via the virtual console on 3DS. That might be the most uh, the most honest way to play them these days. Um, or I should say uh, the easiest, most convenient way to play them that isn't emulation. Uh, and then you can transfer the Pokemon that you catch there into Pokemon Bank for the first time. So uh, if you want to carry them forward onto future generations previously, Pokemon caught in uh, Gens 1 and 2 were locked into those generations, I believe, or maybe it was just Gen 1. But anyways, yeah, terrific games. Uh, Big fan of uh, Pokemon Silver especially. Yeah, and uh, my favorite Pokemon is Haunter, which is, uh, I love the design, the kind of detached hands, um, the kind of ghostly, I think Pokemon, ghost-type Pokemon always look great. Uh, But uh, in particular, I um, I like Haunter and uh, I always, every single Pokemon game, I always face that moment where I know that I can evolve Haunter into Gengar and make it a little bit more powerful, but I really like having Haunter in my party, so I like I don't want to evolve it, and sometimes I roll with just a really strong Haunter, sometimes I upgrade it to a Gengar, knowing that it's really a Haunter at heart. So, good family of Pokemon all around. Anyways... That'll do it for our show today. Uh, it remains for me, Ryan, to thank John, Rich, and Charlotte for joining us, as well as our community correspondents. And there were so many more correspondents that we uh, were not able to feature in the show just due to the volume of correspondence that we received and, uh, quite frankly, the volume of games that we were discussing today. So um, thank you, everyone, for listening. Next time in issue 457, We are going to be discussing Stardew Valley. (laughs) 